never a choice of the nation Our chieftain so brave and so true And we'll go for the great reformation For Lincoln and Liberty too We'll go for the son of Kentucky The hero who drew him through The pride of the sucker so lucky it is now quite certain that a large number of our colored soldiers with their white officers were by the rebel force massacred after they had surrendered at the recent capture of Fort Pillow. So much is known, though the evidence is not quite ready to be laid before me. Meanwhile, I will thank you to prepare and give me a writing, your opinion as to what course the government should take in that case. That is a letter of Abraham Lincoln to his cabinet on May 3rd, 1864 regarding how the U.S. government should respond to the Fort Pillow Massacre, an event we're going to talk a lot about in this upcoming episode. All right, uh, welcome back then to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at the writings of Abraham Lincoln from 1864, uh, the very important year in, in the American Civil War and in Abraham Lincoln's political career, uh, a very uh, transformative year um, for for the United States in many ways. And so we're going to focus on what Lincoln's writings suggested about his observations and his feelings about that. This uh, is a part of a longer series I've been engaged in on American, um, you know, 18th and 19th century political thinking. We started with Jefferson, then we looked at Tocqueville, and now, and now we're finishing up with Abraham Lincoln. We're down to the last um, two episodes. So anyways, um, this... A lot happens in 1864 in terms of, of well, we could break it up into different things. So let's, let's start militarily. Why, is 1860, why was 1864 an important year militarily for the United, for the United States during the Civil War? Well, um, most people know that 1863 was a turning point with the siege of Vicksburg and the fall of Vicksburg and then uh, the victory at Gettysburg. This led to the elevation of Grant to be essentially the commander of all the armies of the United States under under Abraham Lincoln. And in 1864, he pursues his his campaign in Virginia. So it's the, the, like the fourth effort, I guess, by the, the Union. I think I think it's the fourth major effort by the Union Army to take um, to take Richmond in a campaign. There was pretty much one every year. Um, this one was called the Overland Campaign, and it was a series of battles fought in the spring and, and summer of 1864, culminating in the siege around, around Richmond, right? And that's where the, 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 the war would kind of stagnate, at least in that part of, of, of the country, until the final defeat of Lee's army and the surrender at Appomattox, and, and, and that leads to the collapse of the Confederacy in that part of the world. Or that part of the country. So what's going on in the rest? Well, the Mississippi's been seized. So the Confederacies were sort of been split in two. Uh, in 1863, you had victories, a Confederate victory in, in, in Tennessee at the Battle of, or that was actually in Georgia, at Chickamauga, uh, then the fall of Chattanooga, um, a Union victory. And in 1864, you have the fall of Atlanta eventually. And the fall of Atlanta, the Atlantic campaign led by William Tecumseh Sherman, of course, opens up the center part of the Confederacy, the Confederate heartland, to Union uh, troops. This is most actualized in the, the March to the Sea, which took place at the end of 1864. Um, by December of 1864, Sherman 
had, had taken the city of Savannah, finishing the march to the sea. This again splits the Confederacy in two once again. So it was a, a year of military disasters. It, it was also a very bloody year in, in, the, in the war. A lot of the battles fought, especially those in Virginia, were quite bloody. Um, it's, you know, Grant often lost more men than, than the Confederacy in a lot of those battles, but he continued to push on, taking advantage of his, his larger numbers to, to continue to just push farther and farther into, into Virginia. And it turned out to be a winning strategy, as we see from history. So that's what's going on militarily. Of course, there's other battles and other events, but that's, that's the heart of it. Um, now, with emancipation. Now, 1863, the year of emancipation, saw the beginning of the recruitment of black troops, the beginning of training. First for, for kind of, uh, like it's even written in the Emancipation Proclamation this way, you know, for manning forts, for, you know, labor, that kind of stuff. Well, by the end of 63, you know, black soldiers started seeing combat and started being put into combat roles, a, a role they would play a major um, part in the military campaigns of 64 in. So one major event, and I think I may have mentioned it a little bit last time because Lincoln had this retaliation order where he said, you know, if any black soldiers are executed summarily or put into slavery, we're going to start to do the same to a Confederate soldier. He didn't really fall through on the execution part, but um, some hard labor, I think, was used for slaves, for, well, for freedmen who were put back into slavery uh, after being captured. Well, the most infamous event happened in 1864, and this was the Fort Pillow Massacre, in which ca captured black soldiers were, were just um, massacred in a large number. I think it was a couple hundred or so. And, and this becomes a, a major test for Lincoln in how he, you know, how do you, how do you defend uh, these black soldiers who have who have who are risking their life, risking their freedom to to fight for the Union and to fight for the continued end of slavery. Uh, so that's just one of many issues going on. Of course, you have more land under Union territory, so the whole question of of Reconstruction takes place here. Of course, it's during the March to the Sea. I think that that Sherman issues his order calling for land reform. Obviously, land reform was not part of Reconstruction. Um, so more and more on Lincoln's mind is the politics of Reconstruction and what that will will mean. Uh, he can't be very radical, though. So it's kind of like a replay of the early part of the the early years of the war, where he couldn't be really radical on emancipation because he didn't want to lose the border states or he didn't want to lose support of people who didn't want it to become a war over slavery. Right. Military necessity forces Lincoln to change his mind by 1863. But now the question, political question is, you know, what will be the post-war status of Friedman? And that, that's the central question of, of Reconstruction. And one of the great failures of this era of American history is the lack of land reform, it seems to me. Yes, the Reconstruction did a lot for black civil rights. You have the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the end of slavery, the, the creation of free black communities. Uh, you got the Freedmen's Bureau. You have really a revolutionary moment in a lot of ways. But what you lacked was land reform. You didn't have... Uh, the redistribution of policies that would have transferred land that had worked by black people for, for, for years and years, uh, land that they developed through their unpaid labor and redistributed to them. Um, it, it's a real hypocrisy because we know from the squatter debate that when settlers went out in the West, squatted on land, developed it, the U.S. government actually often supported the squatters buying the land first, right? But when it was black people as slaves who developed land, in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, or elsewhere, 
after the war, they were just released to their freedom. They had their freedom and, and nothing else. And it's great, amazing what they did with their freedom in terms of building institutions, building churches and schools and political parties and militias and to defend against the Klan, all this great stuff. I mean, if, if I should do a, a series on Reconstruction as soon as I, I can, if I, I just don't have that particular volume right now to to look at but you know it's it's great go back to my series on Du Bois I talk a little about what reconstruction in that series anyways um, Lincoln's starting to have to deal with this but unfortunately he's running for re-election so that's the other side of the political question another major issue in 1864 is the re-election campaign um, very much on his mind uh, you have a very growing strength of the of the pro-peace that pro pro-peace Democratic Party. They had won gains in the midterm elections of 1862. Something we talked about in the last episode was how Lincoln had to deal with uh, these politicians and try to keep them on the side of the war effort, even though they supported the other party. Um, Lincoln went into the election with some doubts about his re-election. Now things changed with this, the fall of Atlanta, but there was enough feeling that the war was not being won soon enough and it was dragging on, especially in Virginia, that Lincoln started to doubt he could he could win the war. So going more radical on uh, on what Reconstruction would have meant, may he probably may have believed would hurt his re-election chances. I don't know, because even in 65, it seems he was quite moderate on Reconstruction. Um, but anyways, that's another issue here. I think that's the main issues. Um, there's a lot of the similar stuff we've been talking about, such as how he interacts with generals, uh, his Ideas on executions. There's a, there's a lot of little notes here where he's basically pardoning deserters or people, you know, for whatever reason. A lot of amnesties given. Um, but yeah, let's let's go through quite a few documents in this in this section. But it'll it'll be our last kind of bulky episode. The the episode for sixty five is much is much shorter, much less to to talk about. So, anyways, um, let's. Let's start. The first document in this selection I want to, to look at was written in January of 1864, and it's one of these execution notices. I, I you know, I, I really do appreciate the, the editor here, including a, a wide selection of these, because it is such an important part of, of a president's job is to, is, is the pardon power, right, and how it's used. Um, and he, often thought there was just he seemed to have thought there was just too much bloodshed in the war and so as much as he could he tried to stop court marshals from leading to executions for reasons he did not did not support for instance he's got one here uh, a man henry ed andrews this is january 7th he writes the case of andrews is a really bad one and appears by the record already before me yet before receiving this i had ordered his punishment commuted to imprisonment for during the war for the duration of the war to at hard labor and so i had telegraphed i did this not in any merit in the case but because i'm trying to evade the butchering business lately end quote now what's striking about that is he just openly admits that the reason he's pardoning people is not because there's anything in the case itself he just doesn't want to see another body um, as a result of the war there's enough killing on the battlefield is what i what i think um, now how do you maintain military discipline right this is something I think Lincoln must have struggled with, and certainly commanders on the field struggled with, was how do you maintain discipline if if everyone's being pardoned? I don't know what percentage of these people he did ultimately pardon. We just got a selection of the cases here that seemed to reflect his overall points of view on that. But um, I know Lincoln was criticized by generals for doing this a little bit too much. 
Now we see a little bit about reconstruction in a January 20th document to, to Major General Steele. He's a commander apparently in Arkansas and he, he's talking about a petition from the citizens of Arkansas who were basically petitioning for, for reconstruction to, to enter, enter a state. And this is something Lincoln was very, very interested in. Um, but he really, I mean, here's what he writes to this general. He says, uh, they, you know, they're going to elect a governor, that it be assumed at said election and thence for that the constitution and laws of the state as before the rebellion are in full force, except that the constitution is so modified as to declare that there shall be neither slavery nor voluntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, whereas the party shall have been duly convicted. End quote. That's, of course, the same language that would appear in the 13th Amendment. This is the language that was being used in state constitutions um, for a while, I think. That's it. And then also abolishing all the other laws about slavery. Of course, you don't need those other laws about, about slavery if you don't have slavery. But there's nothing else in here that he really seems to care about too much. He, he cares much more about Arkansas being brought in. Um, you know, and we're going to say more about what he saw as the standard for Reconstruction, you know, the, the so-called 10% plan, uh, the lack of land reform, and all these things. It, it, is, it is very troubling, it seems to me, that, um, that Lincoln seemed to de-emphasize so much uh, black social rights and black emancipation in a broader sense outside of the ending of slavery. He, I, I see very little evidence in these documents that he really understood the, the essential material necessity for freedom that, that existed in America for white people, right? We think back to Tocqueville and he talked about the equality of conditions, right? That was the foundation of democracy, right? That existed because there was uh, just a less wealth inequality. I mean, when Tocqueville says general equality of conditions, he means that materially. He doesn't mean it just in terms of, of social customs, right? He means it literally as, as social equality in terms of, of means and, and, and wealth and, and homes and farms and, and stuff. And nowhere here do I see Lincoln saying, you know, what we really need in the South are, is, is a republic of, of free men farmers right that's that's just not even on his his window and had he overseen reconstruction with the popularity of a president having won a war won re-election um how would have congress have dealt with that how would have a radical republican congress dealt with that the one the one that got elected in 1866 i don't know um would we have had the the 14th amendment the way we had it how would he have responded to the to the black codes? How would he have responded to to efforts to de, you know, would he have defunded like the Freedmen's Bureau and tried to shut it down the way Johnson did? You know, it's it's you know these are questions I have and they're they're counter historical. They're ones we really can't can't answer. But um, he says a little bit about this labor system. He'll see after the war in a letter to Alphys Lewis. Um, and he writes this, to be more specific, I add that all the military and others acting by authority of the United States are to favor and facilitate the introduction and carrying forward in good faith the free labor system, as above indicated, by allocating necessary supplies, therefore, to be recruited and taken to the proper points, and in so doing so and forbearing whatever will advance it, provided the existing military and trade regulations be not transcended thereby. I'm glad to learn one, to learn that planters ad adopting this system shall have employed one so zealous and active as yourself to act as their agent, right? So he's basically saying, 
it seems to me here, based on this, this letter. And he says later, or earlier in the same document, that basically if these people aren't in open rebellion to us now, once they're occupied, they should be allowed to keep their plantations. He says, uh, in either case, should the giving of aid or comfort to the rebellion or other practices interest to the government be allowed on such plantations? And in either, the government would claim a right to take, if necessary, those of proper aging additions into military service. Such plan must not be used to break up existing leases or arrangements of abandoned plantations, which the government may have made to give employment and sustenance to the idle and destitute people, end quote. So he says very careful language here that if someone's in open rebellion, you you know, you can chastise them, but it's not, we're not going to break up existing tenant owner relations. We're not going to disrupt essentially property ownership. And that's, that's the great sin of reconstruction. I think it's, he, there were people who did believe in the necessity of land reform. It's just, I don't, I don't see here evidence that Lincoln was particularly supportive of it. Um, so, but if someone has a more complex or nuanced or, or, or informed answer to that, let me know. Not to beat a dead horse, just because it comes up very shortly. It's in a February document of the same year. Uh, permit to Christopher Field and Christopher Clay. Um, and so these were owners of plantations in Mississippi and Arkansas. And Lincoln wrote, having prior to the rebellion had ownership and lawful control, several plantations in Mississippi and Arkansas would put said plantations into cultivation upon the system of free hired labor, re recognizing and acknowledging the freedom of the laborers and totally excluding from said plantations the slave system of labor, end quote. So these are people, I, you know, we assume they probably supported the Confederacy or uh, in some way, but I mean, there, there were slave owners and planters from all the evidence we have here. Um, but as long as they, they accept these former slaves as hired laborers, it's fine. Nothing here about breaking up the farm and giving it to the workers who, who built it up. He's actually asking here the government to, to rein, reinforce the, the property rights of these, these traders. Now, another thing related to, to race that Lincoln dealt with in a lot of these documents from 1864 was, was relocation, right? You had more uh, Confederate territory being occupied by the Union Army, which meant more freed men, and you had more migration. A lot of them stayed in their, you know, nearby. Some moved to neighboring farms or whatever. Some joined the army. Many tried to go north, right, or, or move move around, and so he has to deal with basically finding refugee areas for these these former slaves. And in one letter to um, the governor of Massachusetts, John Andrew, he actually asks if if you intend to accept a large what he says a quote large number of colored persons who will come to her end quote meaning her being the state. And uh, in another one to Edward Stanton, he, he writes, I am told that the 100 colored men in Alexandria, Virginia, wish to go to Massachusetts by their own consent and with the consent of, govern, of, of, of Governor Pierpoint. And he, he says you should let them go. Um, so he's dealing with this kind of what's essentially a refugee crisis in a lot of ways and trying to find places for that. So there's a lot of black migration. That's what we can learn from these kinds of, of documents. Now, um, just moving on in the year, this, this document's from March, uh, dated March 18th, 1864, to, to Stanton, um, the Secretary of War. And this is an interesting issue. So this one is, again, it's coming out of the fact that land that was Confederate territory, which didn't hate, change hands much in the earlier years of the war, but now a lot, you know, much more rapidly 
in Arkansas and Georgia, Tennessee. This land is being seized um, by the Union Army. You know, the question is, what about POWs whose homes are in these occupied territories? Should they be free to go? You know, it's one thing POWs whose homes were in Confederate territory couldn't be sent home because they'd be given a rifle again and would fight. Um, I mean, they had prisoners exchanges, but you couldn't just you, summarily free them. And so these instructions to Stanton are specifically about how to address these Confederate POWs who, if they did go home, would go home to Union territories and most likely wouldn't be a threat. They wouldn't, you know, pick up the arms, you know, again. Um, and he essentially says, if you have confidence by admission, administering some kind of oath to them that they're not going to pick up the gun again, you should you should essentially free them and, and discharge them. There might be concerns here, goodwill with the local civilian population. There might be concerns here about the cost of maintaining them. Many soldiers died in POW camps, so that, that just wasn't good from a humanitarian perspective. So there's probably a lot of things in his mind when he, when he pursued that particular policy. But... Um, you know, it's, it was a, it's just a, the changing conditions on the ground led to this opening for him to, to begin freeing these POWs. And I don't know how many were freed on this policy, but, but that's, that's what the letter of Stanton shows. Um, we have Lincoln, well, also from March of this year, we have Lincoln's uh, celebratory letter to Michael Han, who was the, the first free governor of Louisiana, who was elected um, and, and came to serve. You know, in that election in Arkansas, I was talking about before. So again, we see Reconstruction kind of moving along. Uh, he does add to the letter, though, that that race and this the situation of colored uh, freedmen, I should say. Uh, of course, he uses the language "colored" all the time. Um, he never—I don't see him saying "freedmen" uh, at all. It's always "colored people" uh, in Lincoln's letters. But he says. Quote, I barely suggest for your private consideration whether some of the colored people may not be let in, as, for instance, the very intelligent and especially those who have fought gallantly in our ranks. They would probably help in the trying times to come to keep the jewel of liberty within the family of freedom. But yours is only a suggestion not to the public, but to yours alone. So also the refugee issue, right? He's, he's saying, well, now that you're a free state and, and you're back, back in some standing in the Union, I don't know when, if Louisiana was formally, formally reconstructed at this point. But, um, you know. Do you bring in these these uh, free uh, former slaves to to move move there? And he's encouraging them to do that. He's looking for these places that will take refugees. Essentially, that's that's why I'm reading it. All right, let's let's talk about the Fort Pillow massacre a little bit. If you're not familiar with this, the the so-called Battle of Fort Pillow took place on April twelfth. It was. I guess it was a battle, and the massacre came after the battle. It was a fight in a battle in Tennessee. Um, the commander of the Confederate forces was the cavalry officer Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, he was, a, you know, he's a, a kind of a medium, well-known figure in Civil War history. Um, he commanded about two thousand soldiers, and there were about six hundred at the at Fort Pillow, and the fort surrendered after some battle but then in the aftermath the black soldiers and white officers that were manning that fort were were summarily executed 
there is some historical controversy, more largely between kind of Southern apologists and, and just real historians about what actually happened there. But um, pretty you know, the consensus now is, yeah, it was a pretty much an un, unjustified murder of a large number of, of black soldiers because they were black and, and because Confederates at the time couldn't handle uh, there were, you know, the idea of black soldiers fighting with white soldiers as equals. Um, and that took place on April 12th. Um, overall, 221 killed, 130 wounded were the, were the casualties on the, on the Union side. Now, this figure, Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, he it was, uh, he was born in 1821, died in 1877. Um, yeah, he, he served throughout the Civil War. Uh, as, as a cavalry officer. I think he's maybe most well known for or most infamous for the period after the Civil War when he was a major player in the first Ku Klux Klan, right? The early Ku Klux Klan, the one that emerges during Reconstruction, was a reaction to black empowerment during Reconstruction in the South, the rise of black Republican parties, um, union leagues, and all these other elements of, of African-American power in the South after the Civil War, largely made up of Confederate veterans, and a lot of the leadership were Confederate officers. And, and one of the most important of these was this guy, Nathan Bedford Forrest. So, um, you know, this has made his record very controversial, uh, you know, between different interpretations of the Civil War, those who are more of the lost cause variety. I know there's not as many of those anymore as there were 100 years ago, but they're still around, of course, you know, still elevate Nathan Bedford Forrest as one of the, the winning generals of, of the South. But his post-war record is certainly dubious, but even his war record, as we know from the Fort Pillow Massacre, was was horrendous. So um, that's, um, that's a little bit about that character. I don't want to say too much more about him. Only in the context, I don't, I don't really mention him, except, you know, in the context of, of the Fort Pillow Massacre. So why does this become important? Well, it tie, it, be, it actually provides an opportunity for Lincoln to, to build up support for the war effort. And he's going to give a lot of commentary to different audiences in 1864 running up to the election on the Fort Pillow Massacre to get support from, you know, just, just emphasizing the criminality of the Confederate war effort as a way to support the war because the major issue in the 64 election was war or peace right and and lincoln was very very worried that if not enough gains were made by march of 65 when he thought he'd be out of office you know maybe the war would would be lost or some negotiated peace would be instituted that wouldn't achieve all the gains uh of the war both permanent union and and the end of slavery so he, he really knew, thought he had to win this election for the survival of the Union and, and the legitimacy of, of any victory that would emerge. So anyways, uh, to this end, he gives a speech not long after the, the Fort Pillow Massacre. Uh, let's see, let me get the date of it. April 18th. So that's only six days after it uh, in Baltimore at, at Sanitary Fair. Okay, and he talks about this talks about this uh, massacre in pretty interesting, using pretty interesting language. He says in the speech, the shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as a liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as a destroyer of liberty, especially as the sheep was a black one. Plainly, the sheep and the wolf are not agreed upon a definition of the word liberty. And, the, and precisely the same differences prevail today among us human creatures, even in the north, all the professed to love liberty. 
Hence, we behold the process by which thousands are daily passing from under the yoke of bondage hailed by some as the advocate of liberty and bewailed by others as the destruction of all liberty. Recently, as it seems, the people of Maryland have been doing something to define liberty, and thanks to them, in which they have done, the Wolf's Dictionary has been repudiated, end quote. Well, this is a reference to the ending of slavery in Maryland, which happened a little bit earlier in 1864. But he goes on and he puts this conversation into the context of the Battle of Fort Pillow. He said, it is, not it is not very becoming for one in my position to make speeches at great length, but there is another subject upon which I feel I ought to say a word. A painful rumor, true I fear, has reached us of the massacre by the rebel forces at Fort Pillow in the west end of Tennessee on the Mississippi River of some 300 colored soldiers and white officers who have been overpowered by their assailants. There seems to be some anxiety in the public mind whether the government is doing its duty to the colored soldiers and to the service at this point. At the beginning of the war and for some time, the use of colored soldiers was not contemplated, and how to change the purpose was wrought, I will now not now take time to explain. Upon a clear conviction of duty, I resolve to turn that element of strength to account, and I am responsible for it to the American people, to the Christian world, to history, and in my final account to God. Having determined to use the Negro as a soldier, there is no way but to give him all the protection given to any other soldier. And then he just says, we're going to have to look into this uh, thing, fully investigate it, and apply whatever retribution is possible. Right. But, you know, this I think the way Lincoln talks about this is by pursuing a policy of emancipation and mobilization of African-Americans for military service in the Union Army. I am taking this responsibility for their safety. And if if they're at higher danger, if captured than a white soldier, that's that's a moral burden that Lincoln has to bear. And I, I think it's it's a very, it's a quite a good speech that he gives um, not long after that. And he continues to talk about it throughout that, throughout that spring. Now, what to do about this? He doesn't say much about that publicly in his other speeches, but to Edward Stanton, the Secretary of War, he has to come up with some kind of policy to, to deal with this, right? Do we kill an equal number of Confederate soldiers, POWs? That doesn't seem in Lincoln's character. That's what he says to Stanton. He says that as blood cannot restore blood and government should not act for revenge, any assurances as nearly perfect as the case admits, given honor before the day of July next, there shall be no similar massacre, nor any officer or soldier of the United States, whether white or colored, now being held or hereafter captured by the insurgents, shall be treated other than according to the laws of war. Um, but he also acknowledges here that that's not going to necessarily um, be replicate, re replicated on the other side. And then he goes on that the insurgents having refused to exchange or to give any account or explanation in regard to colored soldiers of the United States captured by them, any number of insurgent prisoners equal to the number of such colored soldiers supposed to have been captured by said insurgents will from time to time be assigned and set aside with reference to such captured colored soldiers and will as the insurgents assent be exchanged for such colored soldiers. But that if no satisfactory attention shall be given to this notice by the said insurgents on or before the first day of January next, it will be assumed by the government of the United States that said colored, captured colored soldiers shall have been murdered or subjected to slavery, and that such government will take action as may appear expedient and just, end quote. So what this policy essentially is, is we'll have a kind of a policy to immediately exchange captured black soldiers. And we'll have a certain <laughs> set-aside POW supply to do that prisoner exchange. But if at a certain time that, that colored soldier is not returned to, to the United States, sovereignty or United States um, jurisdiction, then there'll still be some retribution. He doesn't say what that will be. 
Another aftermath of the Fort Pillow massacre was had to do with marriage and and marriage laws. And of course, uh, one of the major achievements of Reconstruction was the legitimization of of marriages made in slavery and the restoration of families that were broken up after or during the period of slavery. Uh, not all were restored, but many were. I talked a little bit about this with the writings of Charles Chestnut. This was a major issue of his. So go back to that series if you're interested. It's just one of my favorite series is in this entire um, podcast of today. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's one of the major achievements of Reconstruction. But I don't think it was for, foremost on Lincoln's mind. But something came up because of the Fort Pillow Massacre that brought this home. And that was you had a, a black soldier enlisted in the military who had a essentially a slave wife. Um, now both, I think both she, both, well, of course he was, uh, they're both freed obviously because of the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, I don't know where they were from though. It's not clear here in this little letter, but he's writing to Charles Sumner saying, you know, she makes the point to me that she should deserve all the widow's benefits that would, but they weren't formally married. They were only married in slavery. And so basically Lincoln says we should assume that these marriages are legal and and that these widows should get all the provisions that, uh, you know, uh, widows whose marriages were legally recognized uh, before fighting broke out, that they would they would also have they would get the same the same widows benefits, widows and orphan benefits. So that's this just another issue that comes up in the Fort Pillow massacre that that. Uh, Lincoln had to deal with, and I'm sure that came up quite a lot. Uh, many African American soldiers died in the in the Civil War. So as we get into the summer of 1864, of course we have the Overland Campaign. But what seems to be quite a lot on Lincoln's mind are the politics and winning re-election, and that's his focus. Um, his opponent, uh, his Democratic opponent in that election, was was um, McClellan, a military guy, right? So this was an old strategy in antebellum, um, antebellum history, is when a party didn't really have a clear electoral advantage, they could elect war, they could nominate war heroes, right? The Whig party always had electoral disadvantage in, in antebellum history, you know, had its most successful achievements when it, when it nominated war, war, war heroes or, or veterans of war. In one case, it was the veteran of Indian Wars. In another case, it was... Uh, the Mexican War. So the Democrats then, at a obviously electoral disadvantage, a lot of their base area in the South was, you know, couldn't vote. There were still seceding states. They weren't brought back in. You know, West Virginia, Arkansas, a few of these states could vote, but, oh, sorry, Arkansas couldn't vote. They, they weren't fully entered. They elected a, a, a governor, but they weren't... Um, they weren't. So no Confederate state was reconstructed except for West Virginia. Right. But, you know, these are states that Lincoln all won in 1860. Right. And there was a few new states. New Nevada maybe was new. Kansas, I think, entered in. So these are these are new states. There are some new states, but these are all like heartland Republican areas. Right. So the Democrats had that kind of disadvantage, but they had two things to their advantage. One was a fairly popular general, one who many soldiers Respected, so there was some attempt to get the, the soldiers' vote by choosing McClellan, but also you know growing war fatigue. Right, you had an issue that many people supported. Right, and you had things like the draft rights. You had you know the the sixty two elections, which showed some war weariness and some peace candidates getting elected. 
Uh, and then I think the Democrats are also hoping to build off maybe frustration with this war becoming a war for for black people instead of a war just for for union. Right. So Lincoln kind of gets into political mode is, is what I'm trying to say here to deal with this election. He's definitely very, very concerned, at least until the fall of Atlanta, that he would lose this election. Um, but tied to this, he one he does put on his platform. And this is he said this is the first mention that I, I saw of. Uh, an amendment about ending slavery being mentioned in the, in this whole anthology. He met, he mentioned other possible amendments on other different issues, but the like the one on compensated emancipation that didn't go anywhere. But this is the first mention of what would be the Thirteenth Amendment being mentioned. It's June eighth, eighteen sixty four, and it's to the National Union Convention, which of course those are supporters of the Republican Party. Um, and he's suggesting here he's declaring himself in favor of a constitutional amendment to prohibit slavery throughout the nation. Um, and he uses this, at, he, his justification for this is the Emancipation Proclamation. He said they had 100 days to surrender and, and rejoin the Union, and they didn't, and they lost their slaves. So that's, it's just to codify that, the punishment for that. Because if you don't, then it wouldn't have had any, any meaning, I guess. Um, there's a nice speech he gave, also kind of a political speech, given on June 16th, 1864. It's a speech in Philly, in Philly, Philly um, at the Grand, Grand, Great Central Sanitary Fair. Um, and it's kind of a rehashing of the Gettysburg Address. It doesn't have quite the, the same language, of course, but thematically it's, it's the same. Where he starts out talking about how devastating the war was. Of course, at the Gettysburg Address, he was talking about the dead soldiers, but he talks a little bit more broadly about that. Right. But then he says, well, what are we really here fighting for? Right. He says it is a pertinent question often asked in the mind privately and from one to the other. When is the war to end? Surely I feel as deep an interest in this question as any other can. But I do not wish to name a date, a month, a year when it's to end. I do not wish to run the risk of seeing the time come without our being ready for the end and for fear of disappointment because the time had come and not end. We accepted this war for an object, a worthy object, and the war will not end until that object is in, attained, end quote. So, you know, he doesn't speak like about the new, new, new birth of freedom in this particular speech, but he does talk about the broader goal of the war and how this war has a broader agenda that needs to be, that these, that needs to be met. And that has to give this suffering and this destruction and this, this pain some, some meaning. Now, just briefly about a little bit more on the politics of this. Uh, this is kind of a minor issue, but it does come up here, so I'll simply mention it. And that is the resignation of Salmon, Salmon Chase as the Secretary of the Treasury. Um, there's a couple of political resignations in the 1864 campaign. Um, one is Montgomery Blair, who was a, a major player in the Republican Party. He had kind of a minor office, but he... I think at one point he offered his resignation to Lincoln if it's ever necessary for him. And Lincoln says, the time's now, you have to resign. Um, I think that was to appease more radical Republicans. The issue with Salmon Chase was, I think that Salmon Chase was sort of, his name was put in for kind of like kind of opposing Lincoln in the primaries. So he didn't have primaries at the time, but, you know, as a possible candidate for president. And that was kind of embarrassing. So it wasn't that he was doing a bad job or Lincoln thought he was doing a bad job. It's just it was kind of politically embarrassing. He says, I have reached the point of mutual embarrassment in our official relationship, which it seems cannot be overcome or longer sustained consistently with public service. 
So again, we see in these documents, and this just might be the way they're edited. Obviously, this a collection like this is edited to emphasize the most important elements uh, in each period of Lincoln's life, but really not so much focus on the military matters. That's kind of maybe as well in hand under leaders like General Grant and Sherman, but really focusing on the politics as the election's coming. In July 1864, Lincoln gave a proclamation concerning Reconstruction. I, I don't think I have to say too much more about this. It's referring specifically to the Arkansas and Louisiana constitutions that were passed, not yet restoring those states to the Union, obviously. But you know, the question is, Lincoln basically says this is good enough. And, and they're good enough because they abolished slavery. They don't do anything more than that. And, and again, it's setting the ground for this titanic clash between the president and Congress, between blacks and whites in the South, you know, between so many different forces in, in the later 1860s and, and 1870s, such important years, such, such, such important years in American history, those reconstruction years, and so forgotten, so neglected. You know, think of how much time people spend studying and thinking about and making movies about uh, the Civil War. And, and not much on Reconstruction. And, and just to make a sidebar here, um, there was that, I thought it was a, a decent movie, the, the Free State of Jones. Um, I guess it had its problems. It was a bit, um, there's a lot in it. Um, you know, but when I heard about this, it was marketed as kind of a Civil War action movie, right? And, and that's kind of the sense I got watching like the trailers and when I kind of, just what I heard about it, right? And I finally sat down to watch it not that long ago. I think it was showed up on Netflix. So I, I sat down and watched it. And I was, you know, there's there's problems with the movie. I'm not going to defend every aspect of it. But that, it, you know, it was a movie about unionists, you know, civil like a Civil War veteran who it's a real based on a real story, although it's kind of opaque in history, what really happened there. But a, a Civil War veteran who becomes a unionist and basically leads helps helps lead a county to secede with um, former slaves other confederate veterans who deserted or whatever um, but it doesn't just it's not just about the civil war right in fact by the halfway point in the movie it kind of shifts it, it becomes a movie about reconstruction and the politics of reconstruction and the politics of building a republican party in in the south and the violence of reconstruction and all that and and yeah it's, it's a cluttered movie but it, what i appreciate is it emphasizes Reconstruction, right? But a movie about Reconstruction would be tough to market, I think, and, and you wouldn't sell it. So make it a Civil War movie, right? Then people will maybe more, more likely to see it. And yeah, I, I just think it's such an important period in history. I, I guess I, I repeat myself on this, but yeah, definitely as soon as I can, I'll, I'll do a series on, on Reconstruction. Okay, another thing interesting in July was this Clement Clay kind of peace mission to Niagara Falls, right? So there's there's a relationship here between Horace Greeley, of course, uh, fairly connected to, to Lincoln, and, and this guy Clement Clay, who was a Confederate person who, who basically in Niagara Falls presented this letter to Horace Greeley that basically suggested that he's... He was in some kind of, he's basically hired by the Confederate government. So essentially he's there on a peace mission, right? Um, and it's, you know, I don't know the details of this of, of this case, except in, in the broad overview I got from these documents. But it seems this guy's main job, he was essentially a spy for the Confederacy, and, and he, Clay, was. And he spent time trying to get Southern sympathizers in the Great Lakes region to 
to support them, and he was um, sent to Canada to kind of organize this illicit activity. And there's some theories, this is according to Wikipedia, that he was part of the John Wilkes Booth conspiracy. Um, and Johnson actually tried to get him arrested for for this. Now, this particular case is, now apparently what it sounds like is, um, through Horace Greeley, he's trying to smuggle in this, this essentially a peace offer. offer. Um, anyways, here's what the, the memorandum says. This was written by Lincoln. Honorable Clement C. Clay, one of the Confederate gentlemen who recently at Niagara Falls in a letter to Mr. Greeley declared that they were not empowered to negotiate for peace, but they were, however, in a confidential employment of their government, has prepared a platform and an address to be adopted by the democracy of the Chicago Convention, end quote. So he's saying here that there's, there's some kind of conspiracy here between Clay and the Democratic Party, because they both, and of course the Democratic Party is running on peace, so... You know, that's the core issue. If the Democrats win, what would be the grounds for peace, right? And I think that's, you know, it's not so much a formal, like, peace mission like we'd see in 1865 with the, when the Confederate vice president um, parlays with, with Lincoln. But it's more subversive here. It's more uh, kind of through illicit channels and through the media and stuff. But um, basically, the main ports of the platform, which are trying to get into the Democratic Convention, is... Uh, preser preservation of the Union as it was, meaning no major change to the Constitution or the Union. Um, the dis uh, disbanding of, quote, all Negro soldiers and seamen, um, degrading them to menial service. And it, it, what's interesting about this is how much it was a bee in their bonnet of, of the Confederates to have soldiers, these black soldiers fighting. And they didn't mind them doing menial service, but them fighting was just such so offensive to them. More more than just the, the military side of it, that that the, the, the manpower they provided to to these fighting units. But just they, they found it offensive that they were fighting as equals of white, I think, I think. And then basically the return of slavery of anyone who enjoyed freedom during the war. Uh, you know, those million or so who run away during the war would be returned. So that's what, that's the significance of this Clay thing. Um, and Lincoln is then able to use his relationship with Greeley and the press to his political advantage because he sort of asked for this to be leaked. He writes Greeley, essentially saying that this should be sort of uh, released to the public. All right, anyway, I think there's a bigger story here to be told um, about Lincoln's use of the press, especially maybe in the 1864 campaign. I'm sure some historian has dug this up, but I get the sense of this, that he's leaking stuff to Horace Greeley to get printed um, to basically make make this peace party, this Democratic peace party or peace candidate look bad, right? Now, I love this August 17th letter to Grant because we've seen so many letters that Lincoln wrote to other generals saying like, why aren't you fighting? Why aren't you pushing Lee? Why aren't you, why didn't you take advantage of that battle? We saw his frustration in the last episode over the failure of me to take advantage of the Battle of Gettysburg and, and Lee's frantic withdrawal from Pennsylvania and Maryland in the aftermath of that. Well, this very short note, encrypted, it's, it's, it's in a cipher, but to Granny says, I have seen your disparate expressing your unwillingness to break your hold where you are. Neither am I willing. Hold on with a bulldog grip and chew and choke as much as possible. August 17. So that's after the Overland Campaign. That's when you have this kind of siege warfare around Petersburg that would, that would carry on until 1865. 
Um, but just total agreement between Grant and Lincoln on overall strategy. Maybe that's why he doesn't have to write so many letters to the generals, because he does have this confidence in, in Grant's um, leadership. Now, returning to the politics of this year, on that same day, August 17, 1864, Lincoln wrote a letter to a guy named Charles Robinson, um, responding to a letter written on the 7th. And it's, it's a very honest letter where he's defending the choice of using black soldiers and emancipation and making that so central to the war effort. Because he must have gotten a lot of these letters where people saying, like, I'd vote for you, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to help these black folks or anything like that. And, you know, this guy is a politician or something. But he goes point by point in, in saying how this was necessary to save in the Union. Of course, we know that that was Lincoln's view of the Emancipation Proclamation at the time. But he even makes moral defenses in this in this in this um, document. But you know, mostly he's emphasizing on the necessity of the Emancipation Proclamation and mobilizing black soldiers for the war effort. Um, but tying the clear war goals to the end of slavery and making them um, ironclad together, right? You know that you can't win the war without ending slavery. And that, that makes the war about slavery, whether you like it or not, right? That's the argument he makes to it. But he doesn't equivocate. He doesn't do as politicians speak, except he doesn't maybe talk about the evils of slavery much. He, he does emphasize uh, the common ground, which is the goal to, to, to end the Union, or to save the Union. Um, a lot of documents in this section were speeches to different regiments as they disbanded. I, my, my guess of why this is happening is a lot of units were organized and, and they signed three-year papers um, so by the summer of 1864 a lot of these units would start to be disbanded and start to be uh, and these people would start to go home right so we're finding in in this in this anthology a lot of speeches to different regiments you know brief speeches the president would give as these units were were demobilized and and these soldiers sent home now a lot of these units of course had seen a lot of fighting they were, you know, much smaller than they originally were when they were when they were organized. Even though the army as a whole was was being larger thanks to conscription and increased recruitment. But yeah, my point is, I think the average or the standard uh, enlistment was three years, right? So if these people were that, you know, these were regiments that were formed back in like summer of 1861. Yeah, by the summer of 1864, they would be um, have served their time, so to speak. I really like what he said to the 164th Ohio Regiment, um, quote, when you return to your homes, rise up to the height of a generation of men worthy of a free government, and we will carry out the great work we have commenced. I return to you my sincere thanks, soldiers, for the honor you have done me this afternoon. That's the sense you get on a lot of these. They're all short speeches, um, but, you know, they're great. It would be nice to collect these speeches together um, and, and kind of study them. It'd be a nice little undergraduate research project, I suppose, if, if you need one. If you're listening and you need an undergraduate research project, there's a recommendation for you is these um, farewell speeches to these different regiments by Lincoln. Um, you know, I wrote, took notes on a bunch of documents, but it's a lot of the same kind of stuff. A lot of farewell messages, a lot of stuff referring to the politics of the time, um, stuff I've already talked about. Um, but as we get to the dates of the election, right, he you know, he, of course, wins re-election um, with, with a fairly comfortable margin. So his fears that he expressed earlier of possibly losing the election didn't come to pass. Um, but he makes an interesting point in 
in a speech, it's, it's a, technically a response to serenade in Washington, D.C. I, I guess there was, a, he was get, there's several of those in this collection, actually. So he gets a serenade and he, he gives a little speech in reply. I guess that was the, that was the deal, right? But he makes a point that I, I never thought of before, is at least under the Constitution, this is the, the first time you had a national election during a wartime, right? Of course, this is the first major war in American history since the Revolution, 1812, was over before the election of 1816, the Mexican War, um, same sort of thing, right? But it was a it was a sort of test, especially considering how much Lincoln expanded federal powers and executive powers during the war. And that's something we talked about that in in earlier episodes as well. But he acknowledges this that this is really the first time in such a context that there's been been an election, right? He says, he quote, quote, on this point, the president rebellion brought a republic to a severe test and a presidential election occurring in regular course during a rebellion will not add little to the strain. If the loyal people united were put to the utmost of their strength by the rebellion, they must not fail when divided and partially paralyzed by a political war amongst themselves. But the election was a necessity. So he starts out saying, you know, this was damaging to the war effort. It damaged our unity. It damaged our it distracted us from the fighting this politics but he says the election was necessary quote we cannot have free government without elections and if the rebellion can force us to forego or postpone a national election it must fairly claim to be already conquered and ruined us the strife of the election is but human nature practically applied to the facts of the case End quote. and so of course he won so he think you know it's, it's easier for him to say you know it's a good thing for the country to have that i wonder if he what he would have felt if he had lost the election what he would have said but you know he really emphasizes that it's 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 more important uh, in a free government during times of crisis to have uh, fair elections um, connect this of course to the, the the modern trend of of military action or conflicts overseas being used to distract people from the the true issues of an election um what else we got um yeah, not too much. We got to talk about the State of the Union. These are always kind of burdensome to talk about because they're so long and they're a bit boring. Um, but before we get to that, one little note: this was to a letter to Lydia Bixby, to November twenty first, eighteen sixty four, and apparently Lincoln was shown this file uh, that this woman, Lydia Bixby, had five sons who died in the war. And so someone in the War Department noticed this and, and gave this file to Lincoln. And then Lincoln wrote this letter to her. It's kind of a, it's a nice letter. I mean, what can a president say here? What, it's what you'd expect, but, you know, quote, I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the cons consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assure the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and the lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom so i don't know what else can he say right can't send tom hanks to, to save the last one of her sons all right the state of the union um the state of the union of 1864 is perhaps surprising because there's so little said about the war itself, I, th I think the war is, for all intents and purposes, won by this point. It's, you know, that you're still going to have the spring campaign, but very quickly into that spring campaign, the war is going to end. Um, but he talks 
uh, quite a lot about the foreign relations, the ending of the Taiping Rebellion, the major civil war in China. If you didn't know this, the Chinese had a civil war of their own in the 1860s, much bloodier than the American Civil War. Maybe up to 20 million people died in the Taiping Rebellion, uh, which broke up the Qing Empire. Um, very important event in world history, and especially in Chinese history. He mentioned other foreign relations, of course. He does pitch for the 13th Amendment. This is after election, and we know, and even if you just saw this Steven Spielberg movie, Lincoln pushed for the 13th Amendment's passage in Congress in the lame duck session, not with the new Congress. Um, apparently, to, to keep slavery, the state of, apparently to keep slavery from being an issue in peace negotiations, um, to get it out of the way earlier. That was the reason for that. Um, but I just want to emphasize how much is in this document about empire again. It's, it's not on the forefront of these Lincoln documents that are selected here, but every time in the State of Union, you get a whole pile of documents that reinforce this idea that I've been talking about, that Lincoln is a huge promoter of American empire. We got three ways as mentioned in this State of the Union. Once in the Homestead Act, the success of the Homestead Act, how much land was give, distributed to settlers. Right, of course, you could say, well, it's just free land to settlers. Well, yeah, that's free land that was stolen from the Indians, right? And and the Indian wars in the Homestead Act are connected together, tied together, right? And for Indians, the war is going to continue after 1865. There's going to be no peace. Um, a lot of the Civil War heroes would, would serve out in the West, right? In the Indian wars, Sherman, Custer, these two people would be engaged in the genocide of the Native American people in the West. Um, on this point, I was just talking to a libertarian colleague of mine at, at my office, and you know, I was just reminding him that you know about the Marxist concept of primitive accumulation and how you know you can't just reduce capital to like innovation and entrepreneurship and things like that. You got to remember the historical legacy of where capital came from in the first place. And for Marxists, this is called a primitive accumulation, right? The process of enclosure, of stealing land, of slavery, all this stuff, right? So it's a complicated process, but it's a historical process, right? And it's ongoing, as we see now in Africa um, and the, the continued enclosure of the commons. I mentioned that, and and his, his, he kind of um, threw off my comments about genocide of Native American people and the seizure of land, basically saying that's ancient history, right? It doesn't matter. Well, it's not that ancient, right? You know, the Indian Wars were fought at the end of the 19th century, you know, and that's, you know, only a few generations ago. So, yeah, this is recent history. Um, it's, it's not ancient history. Even in the history of capitalism, this is fairly recent. These are fairly recent events. But anyways, the Homestead Act, he mentions the, the ending of the Transcontinental Railroad, and he mentions the gold rush and the discovery of gold out in the West. I think maybe he's talking about the Dakota gold rush, but he mentions these three things. All these things are going to be forces that lead to the destruction of, of Indian communities throughout the West. Homestead Act, settlers, and the settling of the prairie and, and the West, uh, the finding of, of valuable minerals out West, and, and the railroad. So that's, that's it. So it's, it's, I think this is an important State of the Union address. Of course, it's Lincoln's last. He's not going to give one in 1865. Um, Finally, for this episode, we got a really nice letter um, from Lincoln to Sherman, thanking him for his Christmas gift, the capture of Savannah. He writes, 
when you were leaving Atlanta for the Atlantic coast, I was anxious, if not fearful. But feeling that you were the better judge and remembering that nothing risked, nothing gained, I did not interfere. Now the undertaking being success, the honor is all yours. And I believe none of us went further than to acquiesce. I and taking the words of General Thomas into court, it should now be taken as indeed a great success. Not only does it afford the obvious and immediate military advantages, but in showing the world to your, that your army could be divided, putting the stronger part to an important new service and leaving enough to vanquish the old opposing force of the whole Hood's army, it brings those who sat in darkness to see a great light. But what's next? I suppose it will be safer if I leave General Grant and yourself to decide, end quote. Um, what, can, what to say about this? Well, the relief of Lincoln finding commanders he can trust is what I feel in this document. And the frustration he had with military commanders not being aggressive enough, not doing what he directed, uh, failure after failure of having to replace generals again and again, his feeling that he had to be there in the War Department managing the war, right? And then he find, that he finally found the commanders that he could trust. Um, that even when he second-guessed their judgment, he could trust them enough to see it done is, is you know, kind of a, it's a touching moment for me when I, when I read that. I thought, I just feel the relief that Lincoln must have felt knowing that the war was in good hands by that point. Um, okay, that's, that's it. That's the documents of 1864. Um, so... Let me know what you think about these documents, if you read any of these, uh, or if you, what, what you know about Lincoln's life in 1864 in the, in the Civil War. Uh, what are your feelings about Reconstruction and Lincoln's policy? I guess that's the main thing at this point in this series is, is the politics of Reconstruction. Um, do, you know, I think it was the great lost opportunity of the United States. But um, let me know what you think um, about the Fort Pillow Massacre, uh, about the re-election of Lincoln. Uh, if you have thoughts about any of that, please leave your comments below, or you can just send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Or you can leave, please leave a review on iTunes if you're enjoying this series as well. Um, all right, next up, 1865, right? Obviously, we only have three and a half months of documents to deal with. There's not that many, but there's, there's an important one, and that is the second inaugural. So it's going to be a short episode, I think, but it will allow us to give our final thoughts about Abraham Lincoln and his importance and, and finish up our talking about the American Civil War. So um, that's that. Um, so thanks, as always, for listening. Um, now we'll find see you next time. And mauling, our railmaker statesmen can do. The people are everywhere calling for Lincoln and Liberty too. Then up with a banner so glorious, the star-spangled red, white, and blue. We'll fight till our banner's victorious.